0: Hello, hello. I am Hannah. I am a certified personal trainer through the American College of Sports Medicine, as well as um, a 200-hour registered yoga teacher through Yoga Alliance and a TRX qualified instructor. I am starting this podcast because I love talking about health and wellness, and I want to talk to more people about it. And I also want to kind of record it and commemorate it as I learn more. And I love Learning. So, this is going to be all about learning. Every episode, I'm going to talk about something different, and I'm going to do some research to back up what I'm saying. And it's going to be kind of an exploration of a different topic each time, with me diving in to some scholarly and maybe some more like bloggy type articles about the topic bringing on some guests each time, and everyone learning from each other. It's going to be super fun. I'm currently a senior in college studying anthropology and kinesiology, and I'm going to move on to a job and stuff after this year. So um, today I'm going to be talking about some fitness myths, some myths we see in the gym, outside the gym. Um, As a personal trainer, I see these a lot, and it drives me crazy. So I'm going to be busting some myths For you guys in today's episode. Right before we start, if you feel inclined to check out the link in the thing, the description um, of this episode to Patreon, if you want to support this podcast on Patreon, then you can have some perks. There's three different tiers. And the first tier, you get a workout every month. Second tier, you get a couple workouts every month, enough to have a full program. And the highest tier, you will get all of that plus personalized workouts just for you every single month from me so if you're interested check that out so let's get started so the first myth and this is more of a general one but the myth that um, you have to do and know everything when you're doing fitness when you're getting into fitness and when you're starting a workout plan Um, a lot of people this belief keeps them out of the gym um Doing and knowing everything is an extremely overwhelming sensation and feeling and thought. And so I can totally understand why it would make someone never want to work out or come into the gym. Um, But the good news is you don't. Um, If you're going to a gym or you know someone who makes you feel like you have to do and know everything in order to be a fit person, um, they are not a good friend. So you should find new ones. Um, But doing everything is too much to tackle at one time. And I would even say that doing everything is too much for anyone to tackle at one time. And when you look at um, the American College of Sports Medicine's recommendations for progression, so all that means is getting better at movement and fitness and whatever you're doing, they suggest that you increase duration, frequency, or intensity one at a time, not all at once. So when you think about, say you start on a running program and you're running a couple days a week, And you want to run more it doesn't mean that you should all run you should run farther faster and longer more times a week all at one time just increasing one thing at a time and this one step at a time approach helps us to be more healthy in the way that we approach progression and overload and learning more so we can kind of translate that to someone who's just coming into fitness if you're if you've never worked out and you never had a workout plan, and you think that all at once you're supposed to strength train, cardio train, do HIT, do yoga, do stretching, foam roll, make recovery shakes, and do cupping and massage and um, get a lacrosse ball and roll out your upper back every single day of the week, it's completely overwhelming. But if you start with just one thing, maybe it's getting to a class that you like at your gym a couple times a week, maybe it's running on the treadmill, maybe it's taking a walk outside, whatever that is, one step at a time and then you keep doing one step at a time all of a sudden you're you know training for this and training for that and hit that PR and hit this PR so it can be a lot less overwhelming when we think about it as a stepwise approach Um, and knowing everything was kind of the other part of this myth so a lot of us think that if we want to take you know a step into the weight room um, at the gym this is especially evident in ideas about weightlifting among women Um, a lot of women think that they can't strength train because they don't know everything about what they're doing. I will say that it's important to understand what you're doing and why, and it's important to keep learning about it because, um, if you don't, then you could hurt yourself. You can make assumptions about things that you're doing. You could be using unreliable sources and unreliable advice to try and get something done when it's not going to work. Um, but you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a personal trainer. You don't have to be an amazing super strong crazy insane weightlifter the first time that you walk into a gym you just have to know something you can go online and look up how to do four or five movements make a workout out of that and that can be your step one and then from there just incrementally learn more and more as you go and then suddenly you'll know how to program and you'll know how to create workouts for yourself um the other thing that is not accessible to everyone, but hiring a personal trainer, joining a small group training class, working out with a buddy, taking a group fitness class, those are all really good ways to introduce yourself to the gym and to movement without feeling like you have to know everything because you will have someone there with you who does. Um, Just make sure if it's your friend that they actually know what they're talking about. Um, I think that the the thing about the first myth is just that it comes from kind of this self-deprecating place and not this excitement and empowered place of learning and openness to new things. So I think that changing the approach to movement and wellness and fitness to instead of I suck, I have to do better, I have to be better, changing it to I'm excited to try something new, I'm excited to learn new things um, And all of that. And I think that really changes the way that this kind of belief affects us. Um, Because if we walk in thinking that we have to do and know everything and we should have already known everything and we don't, and that means that we're awful and bad, then that's terrible. That's a horrible feeling. But if you think about it like that, you don't know that much yet and you will soon and you're so excited, then it's more joyful. The second myth that I'm going to talk about is that food is the enemy So often when we talk about fitness and we talk about getting healthy and getting well and feeling good in our bodies, we turn to food as the enemy and food is bad and I eat too much and I eat this and that's bad and this is bad and everything's bad. But um, food is good for you. Food is really good for us. It gives us energy. Our body uses carbs and fat and protein. Yes, carbs to move and to accomplish things and to lift weight and to run and to play and to sing and laugh and without it we wouldn't be able to do anything literally and without enough of it we can't do anything happily or healthy healthfully um approaching food from a everything is too much food everything is bad standpoint not only is stressful to our minds but it's also stressful to our bodies so even if you're eating enough that you're surviving and you're not eating enough that you're enjoying life and enjoying food, that's still seeing food as this bad thing, seeing food as this thing that you shouldn't have. Um, a lot of times we associate diet with exercise. Diet, everything is diet and exercise, diet and exercise, diet and exercise. Um, and I, the research that I have found time and time again that i trust from sources that aren't trying to make money off of weight loss and aren't trying to make money off of people's beliefs that their bodies are bad or that food is bad or fat is bad show that first diets don't work period so if you're on a diet and you're trying to fight food and you're trying to fight your own body's hunger it's not going to work um and that they're not even healthy in the first place so many people think that when they fail, when their diet fails, when they go off the wagon and they eat sugar again or they eat whatever dairy or cheese or pizza, then that means that they just aren't strong enough and that all the other people in the gym who can follow their diets are strong enough. Um, But that's not true. Our bodies are made to not diet. Our bodies are made to find food and to survive. And when you look at the timeline of things that have happened in the universe, the timeline, that portion of the timeline in which humans have had steady, confident access to food is really, really short. So when we act like food is scarce by dieting, our bodies respond by thinking that food is really scarce and they freak out and then they want to eat a ton of food. That's why the moment that you start telling yourself you're not going to eat pizza for a month is when you want to eat 10 slices of pizza because your body's like, we don't have any food, so we have to get as much of it as we can right now. So if you're listening to this and you're like wondering why you found yourself in this like cycle of diet and weight loss and weight gain and feeling shitty, crappy, um, that's why. It's because diets don't work and they're not supposed to work both from a biological and an evolutionary stance. It's just not good for you. Um, Diets are temporary. So um, there's an article on BreakingMuscle.com. I'm looking for mostly scholarly sources, but this um, website is BreakingMuscle.com. So the definition is a regimen of eating or drinking sparingly so as to reduce one's weight. So it's a temporary way of living to achieve a desired outcome of weight loss. There's over a hundred different types of diets that people do. Um, And in the fitness industry, people prescribe new diets, like, all the time. So there's always a new thing. There's always a new type of diet to try. But, um, and this article confirms it. And if you've ever read or looked at any of Linda Bacon's research, she wrote Health at Every Size and Body Respect. Um, Overwhelmingly, research shows that diets don't work and actually cause people to gain more weight because of something called, a set point and I'll probably have a whole episode on this later but basically there's some comfy place where your body wants to reside <coughs> weight wise and when you do something to make your body fall below that weight your body lowers its metabolism basically so your meta- your metabolism slows down and you burn less calories to live because your body's like, we're not getting enough calories. so We have to save calories. So we're going to burn less on in daily activities, which is what it means for your metabolism to slow down. And then once you inevitably fall off the wagon, because it happens to everyone, not just you, it happens to everyone who would try and diet. Then you fall off the wagon. You start eating again. You go back to eating a normal amount. But your set point of calories that your body uses has lowered which means that you're going to gain all of the weight that you lost back and more. Um, And we look at statistics. um, It shows that only 80... So this article called Why Dieting is Harmful for Your Health by Eric Stevens on BreakingMuscle.com says that 83% of diets don't work. So 83% of people um, in a certain study after two years, gained back more weight than they had initially lost. Other research has shown that as much as 95% of diets don't work. So if you were at the doctor and they give you a treatment plan and they said that the treatment plan that they were giving you had a 5% chance of working, there's no way that you would take it. But the um, the su- success rate of um, diets is said to be anywhere between 17 And 5% so as low as 5% and only as great as 17% and I've only seen that um, number a couple of times so it just doesn't work and it's not good for us Um, so dieting is more likely to produce cortisol it's more likely um, to cause people to be obese because of the trying to control your weight um, and it's more likely to make us unhappy so food is not the enemy dieting is not working and we have to figure out something else to do Um, and there are plenty of there's more and more anti-diet dietitians anti-diet fitness um, professionals um, anti-diet physicians that are kind of coming out of this and this is becoming a more widely held um, practice of looking at health at every size and not worrying too much about reducing weight but more worrying about how healthy are we Blood pressure, functionality, heart health, the things that really matter when it comes to our longevity and our quality of life in the long run. Um, The next myth that I'm going to bust is that working out every single day is good for you. Working out every single day is not always good for you. It really depends on who you are. The ACSM, so the American College of Sports Medicine, recommends for cardiovascular health in the general population 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity a week so if you did 30 minutes of cardiovascular activity whether it's biking swimming running rowing whatever it is five days a week then you would be good to go or if you did 60 minutes one day, 60 minutes another day, and 30 minutes the third day. That's only three days a week. And that's going to improve your health and quality of life. And for strength training recommendations, they, the American College of Sports Medicine recommends two days of strength training per week. And that is all you need to see improvements in bone health, in muscle function and structure, and general um, health of your body. So... That adds up to about five days a week tops, Um, and that's if you have both cardiovascular exercise and resistance training, which I don't even recommend to brand new people to add those in all at once. I would recommend trying one thing, adding that in, and then slowly adding in the next thing, like we talked about at the beginning, one step at a time. And then when you look at athletes, so general population exercising for health, exercising for quality of life and longevity, you don't need to be exercising more than five days a week. If you love it and you want to exercise more than five days a week, that's awesome. But if you're sitting at home thinking, oh my god, I can never take a rest day. I have to work out every day. And if I ever take a rest day, I fell off the wagon. That's just not true. And it's better for your body a lot of times to take some rest. So for athletes, we know that active rest days and rest days are really important. Um, The body grows and we get stronger in the recovery phase of exercise so when we're lifting weights um we're breaking down our muscles and bones just a little bit any kind of training running to plyometric training anything like that breaking down muscles just a tiny bit breaking down bones just a tiny bit so we create these like little basically little tears in the muscles little tiny 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 like Very tiny, not like stress fracture tiny, but way smaller than that in the bones as well. And the growth comes from the healing process. So when those little tears and those tiny, tiny little breaks repair themselves, they grow back even stronger. So if we never give the body time to rest the muscles, if we never give the body time to... Um, recharge, and rebuild, then it's never going to get stronger. It's just going to keep getting weaker. And there are two terms for this. There's overreaching and overtraining. So overreaching is um, a shorter-term symptom. So um, it's less severe, and it can be resolved within days to weeks. Um, And in the literature, overreaching is more likely to be something to happen to the general population, um, overtraining on the other hand is, um, requires weeks to months of, um, greatly reduced ex- extent of training or complete rest to recover from. And it's a much more tr- chronic tradition condition. So overreaching leads to overtraining. So, um, so yeah, so you got overreaching and overtraining and overtraining, can lead to overtraining syndrome which in its most extreme case can um, lead to fatigue which is persistent poor performance in sports changes in mood and neuroendocrine factors and frequent illness such as upper respiratory tract infections are really common here so basically your immune system just like stops working right because you've trained way too much that your body is flipping out and it's not balanced. So you haven't gotten rest. You haven't gotten appropriate um, energy and fuel and rest to help you keep moving. Um, And it's similar to chronic fatigue. So overtraining can manifest itself similarly to chronic fatigue and clinical depression. So not only you're tired, you're also moody and sad and it sucks and it's terrible. And that's an extreme case of why we need rest. But It's true and it does happen to people and the reason why it happens is because we have this idea that we can never stop training and that one day off is going to kill us and it's going to be the end of everything and the end of our athletic career when really it's really just giving your body a chance to recharge and reminds you that your entire life does not have to be in the gym and to put on jeans or a dress and like go do something fun one day and not worry about working out all the time. Um, So rest is important. And if you're just getting started, you don't have to work out every single day. Um, There have been studies that have shown improvements in health and fitness in populations that were sedentary with as little as one day a week of exercise. So if you're currently not exercising at all, adding in one day of exercise a week, 30 to 60 minutes of anything you want is going to show improvements. Obviously after that, you know, you want to start increasing your frequency and your duration and intensity one at a time. But at the beginning, don't get overwhelmed and think you have to do it every day or you're a failure. Just think about one time a day. And then from there, maybe increase it a little bit at a time. The fourth myth that I'm going to bust is that yoga and Pilates are not real workouts. So many of us think that when we go into the gym, we have to, sweat and we have to be super tired and when we leave we have to be dead and then we have to be sore the next day or else it's not a good workout and so many people who enjoy yoga and pilates and find a lot of value and fun taking those classes and love their instructors and love the music and the vibe and the way it makes them feel are ashamed of loving it because they think that it's not a good enough workout and so much I see especially with new boutique fitness classes popping up the Pilates and the yoga it's all about getting sweaty and it's all about working really hard which is awesome if you want that but if what you want is a really nice relaxing yoga class even restorative yoga where you're not doing a lot of work that is a great way to move your body and a great way to increase your health so studies have shown that in a, an, a population of 26 healthy adults aged 20 to 58, um, these adults participated in six weeks of either Ashtanga yoga or a Hatha yoga class, so Hatha is a little more gentle, um, and both populations, so either type of class, saw significant improvements at follow-up, and they were noted for all participants in blood pressure, upper body and trunk, dynamic muscular strength, and endurance also flexibility stress and health perception so both groups had great improvements in their overall health um hatha yoga was specifically trunk dynamic muscular strength and endurance and flexibility and ashtanga was decreased diastolic blood pressure and perceived stress increased upper body and trunk dynamic muscular strength endurance flexibility and health perception and those were the significant improvements so some of the people in the study also saw improvements but it wasn't across the board enough for it to be significant but the significant improvements were there and they were there almost completely as a general health good health outcome for both populations participating in six weeks of these yoga classes so when we're talking about fitness for health and fitness performance for performance we can there are ways that yoga and pilates and these more mind body focused mindful classes can be really really helpful um, yoga also helps us learn meditation and mindfulness which has been shown to decrease um, mental distress and psychological conditions um, and increase quality of life emotional control and emotional intelligence which no matter what sport you're an athlete in We could all probably use a little bit of. So if you love yoga and Pilates and you want to take those classes and you want that to be your workout, I think that that's amazing. And I am super supportive of that in any population, especially people who are just starting out looking for something that you love to do. It's definitely a real workout. The next myth that I'm going to bust is about spot reduction and also kind of on the tail end of that steady state cardio. So we have these ideas a lot of times, especially people coming into fitness for the first time working out, um, maybe with a trainer or with your friend, that you're going to find that flabby spot underneath your arms and you can get rid of that if you do enough tricep extensions or arm raises or arm circles or what have you. And the simple truth is that spot reduction doesn't exist. I wish that I could cite a journal or a paper about this, but it just isn't there because it just doesn't exist at all. Um, There are some studies that were really badly done research-wise that have shown that that spot reduction is possible because they measured a spot of someone's body, had them do an exercise, and then re-measured that spot of someone's body without taking into account whether the rest of their body also saw improvements. So what what's going to happen is whatever you're doing, you're going to see improvements across the board in your body. The only spot thing that is true is about muscular hypertrophy. So if you're training your upper body every single day, you're not necessarily going to see reduction in fat there or exactly in your abs or exactly in your lower arms where you want it. However, due to the strength training that you're doing in one part of your body, you're going to see increased muscle mass there. Um, So when we're thinking about fat reduction, um, spot reduction doesn't exist. But when you're thinking about muscle growth and hypertrophy, spot growth does exist. So that's why training full body is really important. Whether you're doing upper body and then lower body, switching between days, whether you're doing a 5 week five day a week split whether you're doing a full body strength routine five days a week making sure you're training all of the muscles that you want to grow and get stronger is the best way to make sure because that is where spot growth is relevant is with hypertrophy which is when your muscles get bigger so basically don't try and just get rid of the fat xyz maybe even love your body instead and focus on getting really strong but that's a topic for another episode the next myth that i'm gonna bust is about general fitness so many clients at my work come to our trainers and say that they want to work on their general fitness i'm not saying that general fitness does not exist Because it does. Because there is a way to be generally fit in the way that it improves your quality of life day to day. But general fitness is not a goal that's going to pump you up and get you hooked on exercise and loving what you're doing all the time. A specific goal is going to be the thing that makes you excited and keeps you coming back to the gym and gives you that rush when you realize that you accomplished it. If you go to a personal trainer, as long as they're a good personal trainer, and you tell them that you want to achieve general fitness, they're going to do general fitness with you. And everything is going to get a little bit better one thing at a time, and then you're going to feel like you're plateauing because you're going to forget where you used to be. However, and if this is a good trainer, this is what will happen. If you go to a trainer and you say, I want to be able to do 25 push-ups, that trainer is going to train you to do push-ups, as well as other things, so your general fitness is going to increase, and then they're going to have you getting ready to do 25 push-ups, so then, all of a sudden, you'll be able to do all those push-ups, then when you reach your goal, you'll be stoked, and then you'll set a new goal. Slowly, you'll reach all of your goals, and you'll keep getting stronger, and all of a sudden, you'll be able to do all these things that you couldn't be able to, you weren't able to do before. Instead of thinking about general fitness and kind of fizzling out and not getting excited because you realize that you haven't really accomplished anything yet. The next to last myth that I'm going to bust is that static stretching is good, but also that static stretching is bad. There seem to be two camps in fitness right now. The static stretching is good camp and the static stretching is bad camp. And I think that very valid arguments can be made for both and research has been done to prove both. So there are studies that show that static stretching increases rates of injury, doesn't increase performance and, you know, makes you sad and makes your dog run away. But there have also been studies that have shown that static stretching is good and that it increases performance, increases hypertrophy, increases endurance, whatever you're looking for. So, Basically, whatever research you want to find, and if you want to support your own belief, you can find that research that will do that. However, I think the more important thing is to take all of it and put it together and figure out what it means. One study that I found called Misintrusive Stretching by Ian Schreer basically just says stretching recommendations are clouded by misconceptions and conflicting research reports. So the current literature on stretching and range of motion finds that a static stretch of 15 to 30 seconds per day is sufficient in a clinical setting but some people require longer durations Um, it says that heat and ice approve the effectiveness of static stretching if they applied apply heat or ice during the stretch and that physicians should understand what kind of recommendations they're making to patients and then he kind of finishes with an individualized approach is probably most effective based on variation between people and the differences between healthy and injured tissues so basically this guy's like yeah static stretching is fine make sure you know what you're doing and why you're doing it and it depends on the person which i think is totally legitimate this other study i found um this is by herman and smith um in the journal of Strength and conditioning research was on dynamic stretching warm-up intervention and this showed that dynamic stretching warm-up intervention elicited long-term performance benefits in athletes. So this these were male collegiate um athletes, division 1 wrestlers and they were assigned randomly to either um a 4-week treatment or um an active control condition. So um they looked at the differences between their warm-ups um and they found really positive results in the dynamic stretching warm-up. However, like I said, I think it's important to take in the context of each one because in the study with the wrestlers, you have these guys that have switched over to doing movement-specific dynamic warm-ups, which of course is going to increase your performance. You're doing a warm-up that is specific to the sport. You're doing a warm-up specific to the muscles that you're using. And it's movement. It's getting your body moving, getting your blood flowing, and all that stuff is awesome. And when you look at the the truth about static stretching article, you're seeing a clinical setting with injured tissues and healthy tissues and doctor-given static stretches. So obviously, that's also going to elicit a positive response. It's directly given to the patient by a doctor, responsibly done in a clinical setting as a direct response to injury. The other perspective I think is important here is the yoga perspective as a yoga teacher um, I'm not an expert and I don't specialize in yin yoga but we know that we start out kind of activated in our central nervous system when we're stretching when we're holding a static stretch our central nervous system our flight or fight nervous system is kind of active there and so we're thinking fight or flight and so we have these Golgi tendon organs that are Stop trying to stop us from stretching too much. Basically, they're they're the ones that kind of pull you back. Um, and after about ninety seconds, so like a minute and a half, we start to move out of the central nervous system, and the body starts to relax. We see the heart rate go down. We see the body relax into this position, and the Golgi tendon organs can relax, and we can really, really get into the stretch. And when our bodies are sore and tight, it's because we have fascia that's built up um, in our muscles. And those kind of stretches almost become like myofascial release type stretches and start to break down that fascia. And so when we have 15 to 30 seconds of static stretching applied on a cold body right before movement, it's not movement specific, and it's even sometimes ballistic stretching, which is when you're kind of bouncing in and out of the stretch. Of course, we see increased injury. Of course, we see negative results or no results because it's not movement specific. It's ballistic Or static in a cold body. But then when you move into seeing static stretching in a body that's been warmed up with other dynamic stretches, cardiovascular movement, or more yoga, then you can move into the postures better. You can stretch out the muscles better when you do movement specific static stretches and static stretches that are directly related to what you want to improve that's when you see improvements. So I think that it's important to look at both sides of the research and put them together to think that maybe we're not asking the right questions about static stretching because the the question in fitness right now tends to be should you or should you not do static stretching instead of what kind of static stretching is beneficial to the body. The last myth that I'm going to bust is that there's only one way to do things. So... A lot of times when we look at form, when we look at um, exercise prescriptions, when we look at routines that people do, when we look at sports that people love, we think that there's one way to do it and that we all have to do it that way. Or if you do something else, say you're a really big runner and then you see a power lifter squat 500 pounds, there's always a little part of us that looks at that person and says, I should be able to do that too. And we think that there's one way to be fit and the way to be fit is to do X, Y, Z, One, two, three things. And if I can't do that, then I'm not fit. Or when we look at individual movements, we think there's one way to do a squat, a barbell back squat. I have to do it this way or else it's not right. And if my body looks different than this other body that's performing it, then I'm wrong and I have to figure out how to fix it. But when we look at the human body, we know this on a more simple level when we look at people's height and their hair and their hair color and their shape of their nails and how long their legs are and where people's hips are people get a kick out of standing next to someone who's the same height as them and seeing if your hips are the same length you know same same level we know that human bodies are really different and we know this because of genetics and we know this because we look different from other people and we know this because some of us look like our dads and some of us look like our moms and We talk about it all the time. But then when it comes to fitness, we don't talk about all the other ways bodies can be different. There are tons of things that can affect the way that people move. There are all types of different muscle fibers. So You could have more of fast twitch muscle fibers and less slow twitch twitch muscle fibers, which would make you better at high speed activities or high power activities. Like maybe it makes you better at Olympic weightlifting or sprinting and maybe you have more slow twitch fibers, which make you way better at endurance activities, and you're a marathon runner. Either way, that's awesome. And those are things about our bodies that we didn't choose and we don't, we can't change. Other things like bone structure variation and variation in the way that our muscles attach to our bones can change all types of things. Like the way our body looks when we squat, the way our body looks when we deadlift, when we do a burpee, when we run. It can also change how heavy things feel, how hard different movements feel. so when you look at muscle attachments, the physics of it, depending on where your muscles attach into your bones, if your muscles attach closer into your joints, it's going to make everything feel harder than someone whose muscle attachments are farther away from their joints um, so there are some people who can really easily pump out twenty push-ups and there are other people who push-ups are really hard for them because their bodies are at more of a mechanical disadvantage than others. And there's a lot there and I'm probably going to do another episode on that as well. But basically the message for this myth is that the things that are hard for you and the things that are easy for you are not your fault and you can't change them and it's okay. And that's why it's important to be subjective about fitness because unless you're a competitive athlete, unless you're Going for the Olympics, a lot of times comparing yourself to others doesn't really give you much benefit. It just stresses you out. It just makes you sad. Instead, celebrating the things that make you different, celebrating the fact that you might be not a good runner, but you signed up for that race and did it anyway, or you're not naturally an amazing lifter, but you still love getting stronger. Um, That's what's more important than having to naturally be great at everything and understanding that the things that we're naturally good at are random chance in terms of genetics, but they're not random chance in terms of that they make sense and there are reasons for them. And it's not just for no reason. And it's not just because you aren't fit and that you suck. It's just because you're built differently than everybody else. And everybody else is built differently than everybody else also. And we're all built differently and nobody's the same. And we always say that, but I think that hearing it so much as kids and as young people, sometimes it starts to mean nothing. But we really are all like snowflakes, built differently and beautiful and with our own shapes and functions and folds. And it's all amazing. And if we were all the same, it would be really boring. And then everyone would be competing against each other in the same thing. So there would be way too many people. So we would have to have too many different divisions. And then it would be a total nightmare. And the Olympics would be just one thing. And that would be boring. So it's better that we're all different. So that's my first episode of my podcast. I busted for you eight myths on fitness using some sources, reliable and unreliable. And that's what I can promise you. That every episode, I'll talk about something and I'll use some reliable sources and maybe a couple of unreliable ones. Have a great day. I hope that you go work out, or if you're tired, I hope you let your body rest. Once again, I am Hannah. Thanks for listening.